Matthew 11, verse 7. While technically we are in a section of Matthew's gospel that is narrative in nature, where you see phrases such as, and then Jesus went and did this, or then Jesus began to say that, we're also in the middle of a section where Jesus is teaching. And this isn't exactly at the same level of one of the major discourses that you find throughout Matthew's gospel, but nonetheless, this is a passage where we see Jesus speaking in these words from verses 7 through 24 and even continuing in the next passage that we'll get to next week. You know, we live, and you probably know this, we live in an age of skepticism. And in some ways that can be a wise thing, but it can also do a lot of damage to the heart of faith that God requires. And at the center of Jesus' teaching, well, at the center of Jesus' ministry as a whole was not just tangible blessing, but also spiritual teaching about the need for heart renovation in anyone who would come into his kingdom through faith and repentance. It's what Matthew says characterized Jesus's ministry at its beginning. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, Matthew tells us that Jesus went out preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Jesus was saying, The kingdom of God is being inaugurated now, and you need to believe, and you need to turn from your sin and from yourself. And so it's not surprising, or at least it shouldn't be, that a matter, the matter of faith and repentance is at the heart of Jesus' message in his words before us today in verses 7 through 24 of chapter 11. And I think what we have before us today is a kind of a sermon of sorts. Now, as always, it's vital to remember the context in which our passage lies. Just before this passage, or this sermon as I'm thinking of it, there had been an interaction between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus on behalf of John the Baptist, where he sends his disciples to ask some questions to Jesus, because he couldn't come himself, for he was in prison. And in that discussion between, sort of in between John and Jesus, through John's disciples, John seems to have been dealing with some doubts. And we saw that in verses 2 through 6 last week. Or at the very least, John was dealing with some questions regarding whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah, given the fact that he didn't appear to be engaging in some of the things that were prophesied of him that John knew about. And so John was asking Jesus, are you really the guy? And Jesus' response to John in verses 2 through 6 of this chapter had in effect been, yes, I am. I am the Messiah. Go reread the prophecies and you will remember that my mission isn't only the things that you're most excited about, judgment and justice, but it is also about blessing and salvation too. And that's what I'm doing right now. Trust me. And so when we come to today's passage, it's kind of like Jesus is thinking or saying, speaking of John, or speaking of not being offended by me, because that's the last phrase of verse 6, which comes right before verse 7. Because look at what he says at the beginning of verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So, like I said, sort of speaking of John, and then he goes into what he says here. 
verse 1 of chapter 11 said that Jesus had been getting back into his itinerant preaching and teaching ministry after sending his apostles out to serve on his behalf. And it wasn't long after that, apparently, that the message from John came to him, and he needed to address that. And so it's in the context of this engagement of his continued journey of spreading the good news of the kingdom of God and ministering to the needy that he has met with this question from John and then afterwards turns to the crowds to talk about John. And so what we have before us here in these opening verses of our text are indeed words that point to God's work through redemptive history that led eventually to John the Baptist's ministry of preparing the way for the Messiah. But I think we'll also see that there is more to these words than a simple history lesson or a mere commendation of John. Jesus' goals here appear to be far deeper than simple fact-sharing or history-telling. He is interested in heart change. He is interested in an increased depth of faith. He is interested in reminding his listeners of the necessity of repentance. And so what I believe, as I said, that we have before us is a sermon by Jesus, and I think there are two main points to his sermon. The first one, we see the king commending his faithful forerunner and followers. I said a moment ago that I don't think this is merely a commendation of John, but I also think it includes one. I wonder if any of you have the experience of having someone a bit older than you, perhaps a sibling or a cousin or something that you looked up to and admired. For me, it was my cousin JJ. He was older than me by a fair bit. I considered him cool. I considered him wise. And on occasion, I would take the opportunity perhaps to brag about him to a friend and say something like, my cousin J.J. pitches for Pittston Area High School. Perhaps there's something like this going on in the human heart of Jesus. Both, he is both fully God and fully man, and he had a loving familial relationship with John the Baptist. And in his perfect humanity, perhaps he had a, a desire to brag, as it were, on his cousin here where he begins to speak of his cousin and says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out to see? Were you shaken by the wind, a man dressed in soft clothing? You went out to see a prophet, didn't you? Yes, my cousin John, in verse 9, is more than a prophet. Verse 10, he is the one of whom it was written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you truly. Verse 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But you know, I believe that Jesus' point in these verses is bigger than John. I believe Jesus wanted to point to his cousin's ministry as an integral aspect of God's redemptive plan and as evidence of how the people that God had made and the people that God had set his love on had actually been characterized by failing to receive the call to repentance and to receive his grace. And so what I think Jesus is doing here as the master teacher is taking the subject of John the Baptist with whom he had just been dialoguing and then turning it into an opportunity to preach his gospel message. 
And so just as a side note, I want to say Jesus is an awesome teacher. Turning this conversation so strategically to the subject that is at his heart and is at the center of his ministry, which is the need, the call to repentance and faith. And so as Jesus speaks about his cousin here, he starts with three questions of his own, not long after having been questioned by John through John's disciples. And the three questions are a kind of repetition of what did you go out to see? And then three examples of what they may have been looking for. A reed shaken in the wind, a man dressed in soft clothing, and then third, a prophet. What's Jesus doing with these three questions? I think essentially what's going on here is that Jesus is asking, what did you expect? What did you expect the kingdom of God to look like? What did you expect servants of the kingdom of God to look like? You've had this experience in your life, haven't you? Perhaps as a child hearing from your parents something along the lines of, what did you think was going to happen when I found out about your disobedience? Or from a workplace supervisor, what did you think would happen when you took this route to some goal? There's a sense in which I think that's what Jesus is doing here, but in relation to what the people may or may not have expected when it came to kingdom ministers spreading the message of the kingdom of God, such as John the Baptist. In the rest of verse 7 and through the beginning of verse 9, Jesus is pointing to John, his cousin, and saying, did you think that the forerunner to the Messiah would be this fickle, easily shifting, and unreliable person like a tall blade of grass in the wind? That's what he means when he says like a reed shaken in the wind. Or did you think that the forerunner to the Messiah was going to be one whose life was characterized by luxury? That's what he's talking about when he speaks of soft clothing. Some commentators think that Jesus was digging a little bit at Herod having unjustly imprisoned John by talking about people living in king's houses. John, in a sense, lived in the king's house, but in the, in the um, dungeon, not exactly the palace. So what did you expect, Jesus says? Did you expect a shaky, unreliable, flaky guy? Did you expect someone whose life would be characterized by luxury? Probably not. Instead, did you expect him to be a prophet? Yes. And more than a prophet, in other words, you could say more than any old prophet, but rather, verse 10, the one that Malachi prophesied. And you see in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, through the very beginning of chapter 3, this phrase right in the middle, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And it is almost identical to the words you have if you're using an ESV like I am in verse 10 of Matthew 11. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. What Jesus is doing here is referencing Malachi's prophecy and interpreting it as having been a prophecy of the Messiah's forerunner, the one who would go before the Messiah to prepare the way. And the Jews believed that Malachi 3, uh, 1, prophesied of a messianic forerunner, and Jesus confirms their understanding here. 
And by the way, Malachi, one of my favorites. My dad and I used to call him the Italian prophet. Malachi, Malachi. And so Jesus is sort of bragging on his older cousin in this moment in a similar way to John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus as having been the Messiah. Jesus was proclaiming John as the Messiah's forerunner. And so just like John would have said, this is the guy earlier in his ministry, Jesus is saying in verse 10 in a same way, this is the guy that Malachi prophesied. And then this phrase in verse 11, startling, powerful phrase, truly I say to you, in other words, listen carefully, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What Jesus is saying is, out of every ordinary man that has ever been born, no one's greater than John. That whole uh, among those born of women is a kind of a figure of speech in their day to simply refer to ordinary man. But as I've said already, the point of this passage, I don't think, was merely to brag on John. There's something deeper going on, including this quantitatively small but qualitatively humongous phrase in the second part of verse 11. He has spent some time on John, and he climaxes that phrase or that saying by saying there's no ordinary man greater than John, but... The least of those in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. I think if you're wondering what exactly Jesus means by the word least here, you could think of it in terms of smallest, youngest, even if you want to talk in those terms. In other words, Jesus is not saying that everyone who is in God's kingdom after John are more impressive than John, are more important than John. No, what Jesus, I think, is saying is that even these new members of the new era of God's kingdom in the new covenant, which is newly being inaugurated, will be better off than John. Why? Because the new covenant that came after John was better than the old covenant under which John the Baptist operated. And we can't get into all of this now, but I would invite you to just go read Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 12, and you will see that the Bible teaches that the new covenant through Jesus is better than the old covenant through Moses. And that's what I believe Jesus means when he is saying that the least in the kingdom of God are greater even than John. Not in terms of importance, not in terms of impressiveness, but in terms of their advantage in the history of redemption under the new covenant instead of the old, like John. And so in this first point of Jesus' sermon, where he is commending his faithful forerunner, John, for his ministry in on behalf of the Messiah's work, and where Jesus then, in another sense, commends those who would come after John in the new covenant and follow Jesus, I think we have two pretty simple applications here for us. First, I would just call you to praise God for his faithfulness to his promises, such as the promise 
of a coming forerunner for the Messiah. And praising God for flawed yet faithful servants like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an ordinary man. And apparently, we saw in verses 2 through 6, he struggled with questions about Jesus, with doubts about Jesus, just like every other ordinary man, like me and like you. But God raised up John according to his gracious, grand, divine plan of redemption and used him to prepare the way for the Messiah, just like he had promised he would centuries earlier. So first of all, praise God for his faithfulness to his promises and for using flawed people in ministry for his glory and for our good. And then secondly, give thanks to God. Thank God for his grace to bring about a new and better covenant through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you in this very room this morning or listening to me later in a recording, if you are in Christ, give thanks that you have been brought into this kingdom by his grace and that you have graciously been placed into the stage of redemptive history that is better and a more advantageous place than the one that John was in, who himself Jesus called the greatest of ordinary men. But as I said, this isn't really the point of all this, I don't think, and so we're not quite at the center of Jesus' message in this sermon, as I'm calling it. We're getting there, though. Look at verses 12 through 15. Jesus continues, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, by faith in other words, he is Elijah who his who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he uses this phrase, from the days of John the Baptist until now, it seems to us, looking back thousands of years later, to be this minuscule period of time for us to look back on. But for Jesus' audience at that moment, he's talking about a number of years that had come before that very moment in which Jesus was speaking and then leading right up to their present reality. It would be kind of like us looking back on perhaps you could say an eight-year presidential term. In the grand scheme of things, a very small period of time. But for us, at the very end of an eight-year presidential term, we're saying for all the days of the so-and-so administration, this has been the case. And so when Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah, Jesus is not talking about some kind of reincarnation of the Old Testament prophet, literal man named Elijah that you can read in your Old Testament, read about in your Old Testament. Rather, he is saying that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that another like Elijah, a kind of preeminent prophet, would come to be an important herald of God in the power of the Spirit. And so the point that Jesus is making in these verses is that the redemptive kingdom ministry that the Old Covenant, Old Testament and Old Covenant prophets had been called to and had participated in along with the written word of God through the law of Moses in the old covenant and most recently and most notably for them in the ministry and message of John the Baptist had not been received well all things considered certainly there were those who did embrace the Lord who did embrace his prophets who did embrace his message and the covenant through the law of Moses, but 
All in all, history up to that point had not been characterized by repentance and faith as was required by God and as was the message of his prophets all the way up to John. And indeed, continued to be the message of Jesus, though in a new and better covenant context. And then Jesus uses this strong and emphatic phrase in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This isn't a phrase that I suspect any of you tend to use in your daily life, although I thought it might be fun to try on my children. But when the original listeners and readers heard it or read it later, they recognized it as a sober call to receive what is being said. And in fact, if you look into Old Testament prophecy, often you see indictments on people who have ears but do not hear. And so I think that's very much part of what Jesus is saying here. If you have ears to hear, listen, don't be like those who have ears but do not hear. And so Jesus wants his listeners to know that John the Baptist was indeed a divinely appointed messenger of God, that those who would come into new covenant life in God's kingdom, as Jesus was ushering in, would have it even better than John, and that sadly, many people in John the Baptist's day and in the days before him had not embraced God's message through messengers like John. That's where Jesus' sermon's second point lands, I believe, where the king condemns unrepentant unbelief. Verses 7 through 15 lead into verses 16 through 24, and it ends, as you heard Johnny read just a few minutes ago, on a quite negative note. John the Baptist was the culmination of old covenant era prophecy and prophets that God was leading up to with all the other Old Testament prophets. But just as had been the case with the other Old Testament prophets, John was not universally embraced as a herald of God's word, and instead he was rejected. Jesus says as much in verses 16 through 19. Look at this. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and, places and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by, their, by her deeds. I love that the greatest teacher of all time uses an illustration here. He compares this generation, verse 16, this generation, in other words, the people right then and there, those who were listening and comparing them and their reception of God's message through his appointed messengers to spoiled little kids who are never satisfied no matter what they get. I couldn't help, I know some of you will really like this, I couldn't help but think of Harry Potter's cousin Dudley Dursley when on his birthday he gets 36 presents and begins to whine and complain that last year I had 37. 
And of course, it's presented in the book as this absurdly horrible attitude, because it is. And undoubtedly, you have either seen or perhaps even been a child like this. It's Christmas time or it's a birthday celebration. The gifts are being given and those gifts are not received with humble gratitude, but rather with a sense of spoiled entitlement. Where's the next one? Why isn't it cooler? I wish I had something else. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. The illustration that he uses would have would have been easy for his listeners to identify with. It was cultural commonplace for flutes to be played at some sort of celebratory event. And in God's providence, we had a a couple of those playing for us this morning. And that musical performance of flutes playing at a celebration to be accompanied by a joyful dance as they played that happy music. And similarly, at a uh, time of funeral, there would have been a dirge sung. Another word perhaps you don't use very often, but it's essentially a mournful song. And so Jesus is saying that this generation is like children sitting, complaining to their playmates, you're not dancing even though we're playing a flute for you, you're not mourning even though we're singing a dirge. In other words, you're not getting with the program, you're not fitting our expectation. And so he's saying that this generation didn't like that John the Baptist was a bit more of an ascetic, not quite as joyful as they wanted. He didn't dance when they played happy music. He was too mournful. But you notice Jesus also inserts himself here now, too. Very interesting. His illustration then includes a reference to disappointment that the dirge that they're expecting to be met with sorrow isn't met with enough sorrow. And that's not a reference to John the Baptist. It can't be because no one accused John the Baptist of being too jovial. That was not his problem. That accusation had to have been leveled at whom? Jesus. And of course, we see that in the verses that follow. And in fact, you may remember verses 10 through 11 of chapter 9. You may just turn one page or or not even have to, or just scroll up on your device in verses 10 through 17. We went through this not long ago, so I won't make much comment on this, but just read and remember something that had recently happened. Matthew 9, verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the disciples saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, that's Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, this is John the Baptist's disciples, by the way, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. New wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. You remember this from several weeks ago? The whole point of that episode was that Jesus was being accused of associating with immoral people and neglecting the religious traditions of somber fasting. 
But Jesus' response to them was also, what did you expect? That a doctor wouldn't go to sick people? Or that the new era would look exactly the same as the old? And that's similar to part of what Jesus is getting at in our passage for today in chapter 11. The new had come, but people didn't really want it because it didn't fit their expectations. In fact, they didn't really want to respond to the new any differently from the old. John the Baptist, Jesus says, in his day was accused of not celebrating enough, being too somber and serious. And in fact, if you continue in verses 18 and following of our text, it says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. He's not happy enough. He's too somber and serious. Then in verse 19, the Son of Man, which we've seen multiple times, Jesus uses that phrase to refer to himself. The Son of Man, I, Jesus says, came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John the Baptist is accused of not being celebratory enough he's too somber he's too serious he's not happy enough he gets a demon label slapped on him for this behavior and then when jesus comes well he's not somber enough and they call him a sinner he's too happy there's like spoiled children they can't be satisfied that's the point of jesus's illustration nothing is good enough for them everything is an opportunity for self-righteous criticism it's not that way it needs to be more this way well but that's not good enough either it needs to be more this way and so before we get to these final this final section in jesus words here we need to make sure that we see that jesus is also putting himself in the spotlight here with this illustration and the words that follow john the baptist prepared the way for him after all. And so the point of John's ministry was Jesus. And so it makes sense for John's ministry to be connected to Jesus and for Jesus to make that connection in his words here, as he just did. And so in verses seven through nine, Jesus had said, essentially, what did you expect? And then he builds on that with this illustration of the spoiled children and indicts that present generation for not accepting what God had given them like spoiled children, including the Messiah's forerunner and including the Messiah himself. It didn't fit what they wanted. It didn't look how they expected, though it should have. John came with a sad song, and they called him a madman and a demon. Jesus came with a happy song, and they call him immoral. And so just like Jesus started in verses 7 through 9 by saying, what did you expect? He continues here and indicts them and says, what did you expect? In other words, what's it going to take for you to believe and repent? John gave, God gave them John and they didn't repent. God gave them Jesus and they still wouldn't repent. One of my commentators I've been referencing through this series named Doug O'Donnell, I paraphrase what he says by saying this. They were fascinated by the messengers of God, but it didn't lead them to faith. They were curious, but it didn't lead them to contrition. And friends, isn't that the point? 
that all the Old Testament was leading up to Jesus and that Jesus' arrival marked the beginning of a new and better era and that no matter what era the people of God were in, nothing was quite good enough for their sinful, faithless, rebellious hearts. And even in our day and in our place in redemptive history, thousands of years after this encounter between Jesus and these people around him, Aren't we so often like spoiled children when it comes to God's kingdom and his kingdom work and his message? We want it to fit in with our agenda. We want everything that is going on to be perfectly consistent and make sense to us. We want God to conform to us, not the other way around. And Jesus is far more complex and multifaceted than we are and friends when jesus and his kingdom and his message is not fitting our expectations our plans our dreams and desires then friends we need to conform to him not the other way around and so i want to offer you this call today no matter whom you are in this room conform to jesus don't wait for him to conform to you. He is the son of God. He is the word made flesh. He is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah. And if you trust in him, you will be saved from sin. You will enjoy a relationship with God forever, with all your sins forgiven, with your, eternal, with your eternity totally secure and safe. So if you have any questions about that, I would love to talk to you more about it. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. So trust him, embrace him, repent and believe. And that's good news, isn't it? That even though we've sinned, even though we deserve judgment, Jesus has come to save us if we will simply trust him. However, the note that Jesus ends with in our passage for today is not quite good news feeling. Verses 20 through 24 is where we'll conclude today. Thought about taking it on its own, but I think it fits well with the passage before it. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because why? They did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained. Sodom would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Here's what Jesus is doing here. He is utilizing woes for his listeners. If you've read the Old Testament, you've seen lots of occurrences of the word woe, W-O-E, woe. And he is utilizing woes here that they would have been, his Jewish listeners would have been familiar with as having read and heard them in their Old Testament 
Bibles as a, as a communication device, as a literary device, often also referred to as oracles, prophetic divine oracles that were usually applied to pagan Gentile nations. And what Jesus is doing here is blatantly applying it to Jewish cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jewish cities. <laughs> I actually kind of find it sort of morbidly comical that Jesus, right after talking about how they wish he was a little, um, a little more serious, okay, you want more serious and less celebration? Here we go. And he just lambasts these Jewish cities in the region where he had been ministering and teaching. And as the text tells us, why? Because they did not repent. And just to give you a little bit of a framework, if you look at this map, you'll see, perhaps you'll be able to see that Capernaum there at the bottom and just a little bit northwest of that is uh, Bethsaida, I believe, or uh, Chorazin, and then Bethsaida just around the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So these are Jewish cities in the region where Jesus taught and ministered. All three of these towns Jesus had taught in and healed in. And what does he say is coming for them because they didn't embrace him as king and messiah? The same treatment as Tyre and Sidon. And you might say, okay, great, more names I don't know. Well, here's where they were. They were a little bit farther north in the Syrian region. These were Gentile areas who were repeatedly referenced in the Old Testament as the recipients of woes because of their pagan worship and their self-serving materialism. And so perhaps you might be thinking, as perhaps those listening to Jesus in that moment might have been thinking, wait a second, Jews subject to the same judgment as Gentile pagans? Yeah. Because relationship with God is about belief, not works. It's about faith, not what family line you come from. Turns out, you can be part of a devoted religious group like the Pharisees, like the Jews, and still come under the same condemnation as pagans because of failure to repent and believe. And he says the same thing about Capernaum. He says that it would be better for Sodom than for Capernaum. Sodom, as we we referenced once earlier, um, is basically code for the worst city ever. He says Sodom would still be around instead of having been blown up by hellfire and brimstone if they had responded, You're in, they're in better shape than, than you. As I said, that came up in chapter 10, verse 15, describing those whom his apostles would encounter who... Well, let's just look at that. Chapter 10, verse 15. You may not even need to turn a page. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for towns. And if you look in the verses above it, towns that don't receive the message of the gospel. Towns that don't repent and believe. And so once again, in that, in that context, Jesus is talking about a group that refuses to believe. A scholar named Stanley Hauervoss calls unbelief here the perverse normality. 
it seems as if we have no reason to believe that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had any kind of characteristic notorious crimes or ethical horrors in these towns, but rather the normal perversity of unbelief was worthy of damnation. And have you noticed that in today's age, it seems as if belief is a kind of sin, a social sin? Faith in Jesus as the Son of God who must be worshipped and obeyed and followed is viewed as this primitive, different kind, perhaps, of pagan belief or thought. It's seen and taught as a more enlightened way to understand and practice the notion that no religious belief is a far more sophisticated and advanced way to live than to exercise faith in God and spread his message. But friends, whose opinion matters most, society's or Jesus's? And Jesus says here that disbelief in him is condemnable particularly if you are one who was, you could say, close to the action. In other words, the ones who saw him, according to this text, the most. It says in verse 20, where most of his mighty works had been done. Those who saw him the most and didn't believe were condemned. And that's why he says it'll be worse for them than it was for Sodom, for Tyre, or for Sidon. Because while Before Jesus came, cities like Sodom and Tyre and Sidon had God's revelation given to them through human representatives of God. Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin all had the ultimate representative of God, the God-man Christ Jesus, the real presence of God with them, preaching to them and demonstrating the arrival of the kingdom. And therefore, it makes sense that these cities in which Jesus physically stood and ministered and taught would be held to a higher standard. You could say that they were, in a sense, accountable for, responsible for something quite different than those ancient pagan cities and nations. They literally had the Son of God in human flesh in their midst. And rejecting him like they did brought upon them an even greater condemnation than the cities of old. Now, friends, this should serve as a kind of warning to any contemporary Christian who grew up in a nation where Christianity is practiced freely or who grew up in a church or in a family where the gospel was faithfully proclaimed and then rejects Jesus. There is, evidently, to Jesus, something especially condemnable about that. Our own unbelief, we may think, would be dealt with so quickly and easily if God would just write us a message in the sky or poof himself onto earth to let everyone know, I'm real, Have you ever thought that? But if and when we think those thoughts, I'm afraid we're revealing that we are just like the spoiled children of Jesus' illustration. Because do you know, my friends, the truth of the matter is he has written a message to us. I have a copy of one of them right here with me. 
through prophets like Moses all the way to John the Baptist. These men who either wrote things or had things written about them that testify to the character, nature, and will of God and how to have a relationship with him. And after that, he has come to earth. Not quite poofed himself onto earth, like I said earlier, but he has come to earth by sending Jesus his living word about whom even more was written, either from eyewitnesses or friends of eyewitnesses. And we want more? What spoiled children we are. The problem with this kind of thinking at its deepest roots, according to Jesus here, is the sin of unbelief. D.A. Carson puts it this way in his commentary on this passage. The word of God and the son of God. That should be enough. And so often it's not. And Jesus has strong words for those who demand more, for those who reject him, even though they have every reason to believe in him. Jesus was calling those listening to him that day when he spoke these words to trust in him and to embrace his message, a message that went back to many years of old covenant prophecy and continued through his own preaching and serving and so it calls to all of us here today and listening perhaps later to repent and to believe. Either for the first time, if you've never become a child of God, or if you are in Christ as his child on a continual basis, constantly needing to be reminded of the need to turn from sin and turn to him. And as I said earlier, if you are here today and you've never repented of sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, please do so today. I, the other elders, Brian and Paul, and certainly other members here today would love to talk to you more about it. In fact, I'll just be right up here after the service if you have any questions. The call of this passage is to believe and to repent because of who Jesus is and what he has said and what he has done. Let's pray. Lord, if there is anyone here today who has never turned to you in faith and repentance, I pray that today would be the day. And for all of my fellow Christian brothers and sisters here today who have turned to Christ, who have been forgiven, who are members of your kingdom family, I pray that we would continue to walk in faith and repentance and not dare to behave like spoiled children in our walk with you, in our relationship with you, in our journey as your followers. Guard us from unbelief and unrepentance. Help us to have hearts that are soft, that are warm, that are tender to the touch of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. As always, let's take a few minutes and pray quietly in response to God's word.